Welcome to the Filling the Power podcast. My name is Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is Dr. Judith Hockman, educator and founder of The Writing Revolution. Welcome, Judith. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited about this one. Um, We've been uh, using your work at my place for quite some time now, so I'm I'm really looking forward to having a chat about that. So, um, yeah, so so welcome. Um, Just to begin, could you... Uh, I like to do this with all my guests. Could could you tell me a little bit about yourself? You know what drew you into teaching, um, and 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 you know how you became an educator. Well, I became an educator really by accident because my dream was to be a journalist, and uh, that didn't work out. You know, I needed to be able to earn a living in upstate New York, and they had no need for journalists up there, but they did have a need for teachers, so started out teaching many, many years ago and um, taught in both pub, what we call public schools here, as well as independent schools, as well as residential treatment centers where children go who are um, having difficulties either with law or emotionally. And um, at one point I went over to the dark side, which was at the Windward School in White Plains, New York. And uh, as an administrator there, uh, I realized that so many of the children who had learning disabilities, notably dyslexia and some other comorbid issues, um, they really had trouble expressing themselves, uh, retrieving words or going on too long. And I wasn't a speech and language therapist, but I began to think about ways that possibly could give them a handle on expressing themselves with more clarity. And at that point, there wasn't a lot of research in writing. It was minuscule compared to what there was in reading. And uh, so I used the school in a sense as a lab to try to work with different strategies that might help their, the students and the teachers who were working with them express themselves with more efficiency, more clarity. And um, the rest is history. I think- I, I, uh, Yeah, go ahead. No, go, uh, no I'm, I mean, if you've, you don't call it alternative provision. What did you call the schools for the kids that were struggling with the, the law? Well, many of them are sent to what we call residential treatment centers. Yes. And, and did yeah. you notice, like, I think in Australia, when you look at kids in that sort of, uh, setting that they do have pretty low literacy rates and 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 there's obviously a connection there there's a significant number of children and imprisoned adults who are believed to be dyslexic yeah and recently uh, the newly elected mayor of new york city is a dyslexic and very um keen to try to tackle this problem in the city schools and we'll see how effective that is hopefully yeah i've read about that there's like a move because wasn't it under uh the pre not the last mayor but the previous mayor there was a a move towards sort of phonics and then the last mayor bill de blasio kind of put in a superintendent is what you call it who moved away from that again and then the the new mayor is is moving back into explicit phonics is that right yeah, but there was never really a mayor of New York City who um, 
took phonics seriously and did delved into it with a little bit of research other than our present mayor. In fact, the one before, Bill de Blasio, really brought in whole language with a big bang into New York. And that cost us a number of generations. Well, that built on a number of generations that aren't as literate as they should be, particularly the children who, the students who suffered the most, those in marginalized, you know, areas. Yeah. And, and your focus, so you said your focus is particularly on writing um because yes. and you couldn't find much research on that so how did you go about you say you, you were at the Windmill school you were experimenting what what sort of what were you what were you doing how did you go about that i went about it just instinctively i started with having them write sentences that they could elaborate or expand and um that seemed to give them a hook to expressing themselves with more facility, both orally, interestingly enough, I wish someone would do a doctoral study on that, as well as in writing. And from there, you know, I started to think about the various ways we could build on that. And then realized that with structure and not taking anything for granted in writing, we could really give the students a roadmap to follow when they put a pencil in their hand or when they were called on, if the teacher gave them certain prompts. And eventually a good number of students um, had that become part of their repertoire. And we were very encouraged by that. And uh, as the head of the school, I always made it my business to teach various classes. Yep. And I, you never learn more than when you're standing in front of a class. And there are many moments when I wished I stayed in front of a class, but um, it, it was a very valuable experience. And in fact, Windward is one of the schools that um, the present mayor is looking at in terms of their reading program yeah. um, to bring into the city, which is, I don't know if you're familiar, an Orton Gillingham program yep. that has been very, very effective. Yeah, yeah, Orton Gillingham is a structured literacy program a, a, a phonics based program it's got it's got a few little other bits and pieces as well hasn't it to make it a little bit um different but it's uh is that right i don't i'm not that familiar with it well, okay i'm sorry can you repeat the question it, oh. it, it's a it's a very proscribed sequence yeah. of teaching kids how to read yeah and in my experience in my early experience at that school what i realized is that um Frankly, almost all kids need this. Yeah. There's a certain percentage that will learn to read if a monkey is in front of the class teaching them, but almost every student could benefit from this. And the only difference would be the rate at which you'd move the student along. Yeah. And um, we started a teacher training institute and we gave classes in the Orton-Gillingham method and in uh, the writing method. Yeah. And initially it was attended mainly by speech and language pathologists and uh, special ed teachers. Yeah. And within a couple of years, we got a very significant number of the teachers that attended these courses from the mainstream schools because our mission was to return students to the mainstream. Yeah. And when they returned, they very rarely needed additional help, support, 
And we were very gratified to see that most of them were very, or hear and get the word back that most of them were better writers than their own students. Excellent. So yeah, that was- That, that must was have given you a real sense of achievement when, when the kids could graduate back into mainstream. It gave them a tremendous a sense of achievement. We were really proud of them. Yeah. They did very well. Um, now, obviously, you've you've done you're, you're a, a doctor. Um, so, what was what was your, the work was the work for your doctorate? Was that based on 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 writing or something else? No. Well, I, I got a couple of degrees from um, Teachers College at Columbia. Yeah. And um, the first master's that I got was was quite honestly um, not worth the time or the money. I hope this doesn't get aired too much, <laughs> but it was in learning disabilities. And, and I realized that at the end of the master's, I really didn't know how to teach kids to read or know a lot of the research about reading. So I got a second master's in reading. Yep. At some point along the way, I became much more interested in curriculum design as a whole. And so um, the master's was in um, instruction, curriculum and instruction. Excellent. So um, now, I'm sorry, the doctorate was in curriculum. Now you're <laughs> famous for um, obviously the, the the Hockman method and the writing revolution, and and there obviously I've got your I've got your book with Nat Wexler in front of me here. Um, it's it's really valuable. Um, I've got something highlighted. I might ask you about later about prompts, but that relates to a later question. Um, but um, I, it might sound like a silly question, but you've got the Hopman method, you've got the writing revolution. Are they basically the same thing or is the latter an evolution of the former? So that's such a good question because they're, they're used kind of interchangeably. Yeah. The, the writing revolution is not just the name of the book. Yeah. It's also the name of our organization, yeah. which does teacher training. Yeah. And it was also the name of an article written for the Atlantic in 2012 that um, was much more widely read than any of us expected and led to the founding of the organization because um, we were just overwhelmed with interest, yeah. uh, you know, outside interest about this method. And um, up until then, <laughs> where the schools had adopted the method and the way the teachers referred to it was simply Hockman. And sometimes in classrooms, they were uh, very surprised to see that there was a person attached to the name of Hockman because Hockman just meant, you know, let's do these strategies now. And um, I guess lack of creativity led to all three things being called the writing revolution. And the Hockman method being off to the side, but we kept the Hockman method because at that point it was pretty widely used. And we wanted people to understand that this was a method, not a program in a box. Yeah. It was a method that would be embedded in what the teachers were teaching. Yeah. So <clears throat> and so if you were to try and distill, and I know you obviously you've written books on this, so this is this is a bit of a hard. Uh, thing to ask, but if you to distill the the method into a few key principles, um, so, say for someone who's unfamiliar with it, who hasn't come across it before, um, what what would you what would you say they are? 
The key principles, I think, is to look at writing as a tool of knowledge acquisition. Yep. Start at its most fundamental level, which is the sentence, um, which surprisingly to us is very often ignored. Um, to teach grammar and the conventions within the writing program, it's uh, within the writing method itself in service of the strategies that we're teaching. For example, um, there isn't much direct instruction about dangling participles or, but there is direct instruction about something called a positives yeah. or subordinating conjunctions because they're very much um, needed to for the students to write the way we're teaching them to write. Yeah. So that's what we mean by embedding it in the in the method itself. See, I slipped and said program. <laughs> well, I think I think you're fine. Um, because I, I I mean a lot of writing instruction. Certainly, the way I was taught at school. I went to school in the 1980s when um. It was all, I was lucky my mum taught me to read using phonics because at school it was all um, whole language approach. Um, I know, I know that. <laughs> and, um, but writing instruction was you just wrote, just write a lot of stuff. And, um, right. and then at the end, um, you'd, you'd, well, you might get some feedback on it. Or, um, and I always think that this approach where you get kids to just write a whole load of stuff and then right. at the end... Quite put it put a couple of comments at the end i reckon that's like trying to coach football by by um watching people play football and then at the end writing them every player a, a letter uh, with a couple of lines on how they can improve for next time it doesn't it's never struck me as a very efficient way of trying to teach something that's a terrific analogy and that comes and and by the way Back in the day, that's how I taught writing. Yeah. You know, I was, I gave some terrific assignments. So did a lot of my colleagues. We ignored teaching kids how to write. Yeah. And that was, you know, really something that I'm not proud of when I look back at it. Yeah. But I mean, you, you don't know. I mean, I went to, uh, when I trained, I came out of uh, teaching college thinking that I had to. Uh, the kids had to learn science through doing scientific investigations. And I felt very, yeah. And I felt very guilty that I couldn't get that to work. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think we should be blamed necessarily for the methods that we've used in the past, because um, we haven't, we haven't been exposed necessarily to the, to the, the best thinking on these things, unfortunately. And you can't, as we know, discovery learning is not, it takes time. So you can't figure that all out for yourself from day one. You have to, you have to, fail a little bit I think before you can you can you can come to the to see the the, the, the better approach right well in your last blog about you know summer hill it yeah. evokes so many memories for me because even as a young teacher when I read that I thought what the heck is this about this will never work I've been teaching long enough to know that this was the way to keep kids illiterate yeah and the way to create illiterate adults which is you know what we're dealing with i think in a great i i think we're dealing with that very sadly as a pretty big problem today and one of the things i'll just remark on this but when i when i picked up um what we, another thing so we we at my place we're we're big into um rosenshine's principles of instruction that's kind of like our go-to for when we're trying to design new units or say well what, what are right. rosenshine's principles 
And uh, we'd, we'd brought that on board when I first came across the writing revolution. And I thought, um, gosh, this is Rosenstein's principles of instruction applied to writing. That, that was my first right. thought when I started to read about it. Um, and I think that that's, um, I, I, and I think that's, in a way, Rosenstein's principles are not that revolutionary. As I understand it, they're derived from uh, observing teachers in the 60s and 70s and what the most effective ones did. So really, it's just a distillation of kind of craft knowledge. Um, but when you reflect on how so many people do teach writing, what we just talked about, just write lots of stuff and then we'll give you some feedback at the end. Breaking it down to the sentence level and starting from there does actually feel pretty revolutionary, um, even though in a sense it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, you express yourself very well. When I began experimenting with various strategies as to get the kids to think about sentences and to use those sentences and the sentence strategies as a vehicle, not just to create more complex sentences so that they wouldn't struggle so much when they encounter them in text, which is something I learned from the research can happen. But um, I think that I began to see a certain pattern taking shape where the, the more they became comfortable with the varied ways they could express themselves and how it served as a comprehension check when it was embedded in content, how it was uh, extremely effective for using both oral and written prompts in, in guiding their responses. I didn't know anything about Rose and Shine until people began to tell me what you've just, you know, and then, of course, you know, I saw that's absolutely true. It is it is common sense why we educators um, choose to ignore some of that in, you know, so frequently is is beyond me. However, the success of the book, and I think Natalie Wexler may have mentioned this to you, my co-author, yeah. in her interview, we saw the book as kind of an additional handout to our courses, we never dreamed that it would sell it at the extent that it has. And I think that is because people are looking for a more, a more effective way. And I think people are realizing how important it is to teach kids to write because you can't think of many occupations that don't require writing in some form or another. I, I have, a, I have a, a view on why we go about this sort of stuff wrong, where whole language comes from and where uh, this just write lots of stuff and we'll see what comes out the other end comes from. And I think it's um, a confusion. Um, it, so uh, very briefly, I'll, I'll, uh, the, the pe people observe that kids learn to speak and understand language naturally. You just surround them right. with with people who are speaking and, th and they can see that that's learning because if the child was put in uh, a French family or in a Chinese family, they'd learn French, they'd learn Chinese. And if they're put in an Australian family, they'd learn English. And so we know it's learning. We know it's not something that the child is programmed with from birth. They, they learn the language around them and they notice that, that kids do that naturally. And they, they think, well, there's so little effort, so little drudgery, they just pick it up. So why can't school be like that? Why can't they just pick up reading by being surrounded by books 
and, and words and why can't they just pick up writing by writing and it can all be very joyous and we can go out to the, um, the, the woodlands and we can uh, commune with nature and we can learn to read and write. And of course that's flawed because uh, we've been speaking to each other for tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions to some extent of years. So evolution has worked on that process so that we can, um, we, we, that's why we can just sort of pick it up from our surroundings. But writing is only 5,000 years old if you go back to the ancient Sumerians, something like that. Right. So we can't possibly have evolved um, a capacity to just pick that up in that amount of time, even if it gave us an evolutionary advantage, which I'm not sure it, like it, it would do, like because for most of that time, it's been a small class, a priest class who have been literate and, and everyone else, including kings and very successful people have not. So, um, and mass literacy is only a couple hundred years old. So that's why it looks and feels very different. But I think a lot of people um, are convinced by this sort of romantic notion that you should learn to read and write um, in the same way you learn to speak and, 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 and they can't get past that. You're absolutely right. It is not the natural evolutionary behavior that, you know, oral languages and of all of the oral languages in the world, just a tiny percentage exists in written form of the whole. And so, you know, but a lot of people just can't and, and they want, they also want um, students, I'm, I'm not sure when this started in the 50s or 60s, but to have the joy of reading or the joy of writing. And joy doesn't come without mastery. And so the, the ways to teach readings, well, thank God it seems as if there's this light at the end of the tunnel with the reading wars, but with writing, um, you know, Writers Workshop and similar programs have really, you know, had a lot of traction for several decades and really kept individuals. What I don't understand is why the teacher training institutions have been so slow actually in um, grasping this because everyone complains about how kids write and not just kids. I mean, we've been asked to help out in law firms and yeah. other and, you know, I don't know whether it was tongue in cheek, but it looked like they were fairly serious. Yes, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, Zoom is just giving me a message that it's going to end the meeting in 10 minutes. That's obviously a new thing. So if that happens, I'll probably uh, call you back or something. We'll see how that goes. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, right. So let me just click off that. Um, now, imagine I, I'll just get through a couple of um other ones, hopefully in that 10 minutes, just in case that does um, uh, throw things. Um, imagine, and I think this is a bit of a, I think I already know the answer to this question, but I think it illustrates an important point. Imagine you've got students who are using the writing revolution to say, learn about the French revolution. Um, so, and say they're using sentence expansions. Should those kids go away from that lesson thinking that they learned sentence expansion or that they learned about the French revolution? This method exists in service of the content. Okay, I mean, the, the content is just not a convenient uh, vehicle to acquire a skill. It's the other way around. And we always had that in mind and it became more and more important 
the more we added uh, various things like the importance of summarizing, the importance of taking notes, the importance and the structure of multiple paragraph compositions and essays. I mean, these and the rigor of the method is driven by the content that you're asking. So in many ways, you know, when you ask me about the principles that support the program, the, saying it again, the method, the principles basically remain the same. It's the content that changes and adds rigor to the method. Excellent. Does that make sense? That makes that makes a lot of sense, Judy. Thank you. Um, I just think that that's important because, and you've stressed the number of times that the writing revolution is not a program. So we're not learning the writing revolution. We're not learning these strategies. We're using it in the service of learning content. Um, right. Now, an, another thing that, that comes up in, in the, the practical use of, of the program, certainly in my context, in Australia, we have uh, standardized assessments in years three, five, seven, and nine. And these involve a writing task. Um, right. And the writing task in year three um, is a whole piece of writing. So they'll have, have to write either a whole piece of persuasive writing or a whole piece of narrative writing. And a lot of these, obviously, it's based on these assumptions about um, uh, writing, you know, that we wouldn't necessarily subscribe to because I, th I think students in grade three are not always ready for writing cold, persuasive uh, texts at that point. If they I would say that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So have you got any um, advice for teachers who are sort of stuck in that position where, where they want to use the, the writing revolution principles, they want to work from the sentence level, but they've got an accountability system that, that's requiring the kids to write whole uh, texts. So what we found is that um, it's not a good idea to teach to the test. No. That if that and 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 we've compared our schools with analog schools, schools that are partners of, yeah. with analog schools, and the schools that stuck with and implemented the techniques that we're stressing did much better than the analog schools, some of whom were very explicitly teaching to the tests. Yep. Which to us prove, and, and by the way, when I said do well, it wasn't just on the writing revolutions assessments. Yeah. It was on the state and city assessments where we happen to have partner schools. And right now we have a pretty large study going on in Louisiana and the early results prove the same thing that we've seen in other sites, that if we stick to what we feel is right and we're giving kids the fundamentals of what we feel they have to know, they're going to do all right. We can, you know, get them used to the, you mentioned prompts, or we can get them used to the kind of prompts that they may encounter, but we're not teaching to these tests. So Judy, um, you've obviously you've started you've you've got this um organization now the writing revolution uh, it's doing good work uh, i know that we're involved uh, at my place in in australia now i think we're treated as australia's treated as like a district um in the program um and um so how do you see uh, the writing revolution developing over over the next few years what what's the plan and and what would what would you like what would you like to see happen there's a number of things I think that uh, we would like to see happen. One is um, we would like to see uh, 
and, and this is slowly happening in a number of states here, embedded more in uh, teacher training programs where teachers graduate with some idea about what it, what are effective ways to teach writing and what have been less effective over time and the research that's emerging, uh, and which is some problematic, some not, but we think it deserves a place at this point in teacher training institutions. We also have plans. We have a very uh, complete resource library now. We're going to tier it even further and expand it even further with a community of teachers that can keep in touch with each other as well as getting um, current information from us on a regular basis, webinars, videos, and so forth, in addition to the templates and exemplars that they can download. Um, and we're surprised and um, happy about how many countries this is spreading to. And it's spreading, uh, you know, mainly because of the book, which we have plans of revising down the road, uh, because we're always learning. And, you know, we, we get a lot of information from our partners, which have been very, very helpful, including a lot of our Australian partners. So in their pajamas, when we take <laughs> when we the course, their pajamas and coffee. Um, so, yeah, look, I think it's I think it's a positive. There's, I think at the start you alluded to the fact that there's quite a lot of research and, and that like if you want to go if you want to teach structured literacy and phonics there's a quite a, a lot of programs to choose from and, and a substantial body of research on which to base it but writing there's there's quite little and when schools want to improve their writing there's not many places to go when we found the writing revolution that was um, almost a relief because the, the, there's not actually that many um sources to go to you can read some research on meta-analyses and things like that but it doesn't really give you much that's practical that you can go and do in the classroom, whereas the writing revolution does. And I think that that's what's attractive about it. Yes, and I think the other thing that makes it attractive to teachers is that starting at the sentence level, they get an immediate look and they get some instant gratification themselves as to how quickly this can catch on with students and how powerful it is in terms of getting them to expand not just their knowledge, but their ability to express themselves through writing. Oh, I've just lost you there. Have you lost me? Um, you've frozen on my screen, Judy. I don't know whether you can Wait. still... Oh, you're back. Sorry, you froze then a bit on my screen, Judy. So I lost the, the end of what you were saying then. Um, um, do, do you remember what I last said? Yeah, I just got a thing that for some reason my internet connection is unstable. Huh. I think I think that um, everything that we're doing leads up to arguments. Yeah. And if if a student can write good arguments it really stands them in very good stead, not just for post-secondary education, but for thinking more logically and coherently. And so we strongly believe, and we've seen this ourselves in practice, that when you follow this straight through, that 
the students are much more empowered, which is what we want at the end of the day, and much more uh, effective in expressing themselves. And we've seen this in populations that are not exposed to rich language behavior. So we're hoping that it really gains a foothold all over. <laughs> now, I, I think you've made throughout the, there's a connection <clears throat> there, uh, but let's just address this explicitly. So your co-author of the Writer Revolution, Matt Wexler, who you mentioned has been on the podcast, uh, has uh, recently been writing about the importance of a knowledge-rich curriculum, both online and in her book, The Knowledge Gap. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on this? Do you think we have um, lost an emphasis on knowledge in the school curriculum? I mean, critics might say curriculums are already knowledge-rich, and so it's, it's a strange thing to try and focus on. What are your thoughts on that? I can't imagine anybody visiting a typical elementary school classroom, in this country at least, yeah and saying that they're looking at a knowledge-rich curriculum, unless it's, you know, very specifically, and, and that's a tiny percentage of what's out there, that somehow along the way, um, curricula in the elementary grades based on knowledge went by the wayside. The textbooks reveal that, the teacher training reveals that. It's very much a test prep skills level, you know, kind of, you know, um, it's, it's hard to believe, but that's what it is. And, and the written assignments that are attached to the texts and the, and the kind of curricula that we see in elementary schools are, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. I mean, you know, they're, they're, really, um, they're really not vehicles for teaching writing as, as I would understand it. And most of my colleagues would get it. Because it's that you've got this idea that it's all about skills, so like reading comprehension skills, for instance. But we're going to practice these skills in almost like a random assortment of books, right. and you could have different kids in the same class reading about completely different things. Yeah, well, one of the things you know, when when Natalie before Natalie wrote the knowledge gap, I mean, we were having coffee one day. And we talked about, you know, uh, I had much more exposure to elementary classrooms. And, you know, I said, you're going to be hard foot put to find an elementary program that's rich in knowledge and kids can handle this. For some reason, the teachers, the teacher education uh, hasn't handled it well. And just just a couple of generations ago, our students were far more knowledgeable about history, about government, about so many than they are today. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure why that happened. I think Natalie puts forward a very interesting thesis and that would be the way I would go, I guess. Yeah, and John Dewey, I think, is the guy responsible for the whole expanding horizons idea, which is that little kids are not capable of comprehending anything outside their immediate experience. So you can't teach them about ancient Egypt or or ancient China or anywhere like that because they can't comprehend it and you've got to start with the family and objects in the home and then gradually work your way out, which I think is deeply flawed because little kids uh, are always imagining themselves into, you know, strange lands and strange places. That's what a lot of the, the stories they like are about. So exactly. it does seem a very strange idea that we've adopted. It, well, is that true in Australia as well? Because that certainly dominates the scene here in the United States. Oh, 
Absolutely. We've just reviewed our curriculum, the Australian curriculum, um, and it, re, the, what we call HASS, History and Social Science. Uh, right. is, it's a bit of a lost cause, really. There were lots of culture war fights over the, the relative importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and European history at quite a high level. But when you go down to the, the early elementary grades, it's Dewey expanding horizons. It's, you know, your family and and, and right. these little kids aren't capable of learning about um, other co uh, ancient cultures or histories or things like that. So it's a thoroughly embedded idea. And it's been criticised for um, a long time, um, but it's still, it's there. And it's at the heart of teacher training colleges um, and their approach to it. So it's really in the system throughout the world, I think. Well, trying to change it uh, really gets into a lot of touchy subjects today. Yeah. And, you know, it becomes much more than an educational issue. It becomes a social and cultural issue as well. I'm hoping, and, and the textbook uh, publisher are, you know, they, they've made a heavy investment in what's out there. And schools have made a heavy investment in purchasing, you know, their materials. I, I'm I'm hoping this will change in the future. I'm hoping that there'll be a big enough movement to change this in the future, because the consequences of this are pretty dire. I mean, um, I, I in in the hope that my grandchildren won't listen to this podcast. My grandchildren, who are older, you know, they they're in college now, and um, they're their knowledge of the world is so much more limited than even their parents were, much less in my generation. And they don't have learning issues. They just haven't been exposed to a whole lot, except for one who was in a very traditional independent school and got a very traditional education. But, uh, and, and the difference is, is striking in, in her fund of knowledge. And I do wonder whether part of it is a, a political uh, issue. No, like no if, if you focus on skills, then you can avoid all these difficult questions like we were talking about just earlier in Australia, how much Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, how much European history. You don't have to worry about right. that because we can just focus on these skills. Exactly, exactly. It gets you out of all those. And the focus on skills hurts the very population the most that they claim they want to be enabling. So, you know, it, it's, it's been a sad picture. Uh, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to see uh, a situation where it's being done better. Someone recently told me that in France, being, or I read something recently where France with its national curriculum is doing things a lot better than we are. And perhaps that's what's missing here. Look, I think we have to accept that uh, a history and social science curriculum or whatever you want to call it, it is always going to be contentious. Um, people are always going to say, whose knowledge are we going to teach? Is it all just dead old white European men? That's How right. and, and I think it's always going to be contentious, but I think we just have to be up for having that discussion and saying we're going to compromise here, we're going to reach a balance. Uh, no, the curriculum will satisfy no one in its entirety, but it has to, um, And uh, but dodging the question I don't think is is a solution because it leads where we are now. Yeah, it leads to no movement at all from where we are now. But 
you know, I, I'm, I'm hope. Well, if I weren't hopeful, I guess I'd give up the whole thing. But I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe there are some cracks in this now because I think people were alarmed that their children couldn't write a decent sentence, much less a paragraph. I think that some people are quite concerned about what their kids don't know, where the knowledge gaps are. And I think that's one of the reasons that Natalie's book has become so successful. And it, it poses some interesting solutions to the problem. Well, on that theme, let's, let's um, move to my final question uh, for you, Judy. And that's, it's a big question. It's, it's a, a form of, I ask a form of this question to all of my uh, podcast guests. Um, and it's how, how are we going to fix education? Um, what's the most important thing we need to get right that is not right at the moment? And uh, we've sort of gone into it a bit, but, but what's, the, what's the solution? What's the big levers that we can pull? Oh my goodness, that's that's. that's <laughs> it's not, a tough one. It, it's a very tough one because it brings in so many elements of 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 both of our countries that I think, um, I think that you've got. I think educators like you have to make even a bigger impact on the policymakers on the parents and families who may realize that there are issues. We do a lot of talking to each other. Yeah. I don't think, I think that part of the reason that the reading wars, for example, went on for a ridiculously long time in spite of tons of research is because we were not effective in communicating what works to the outside world. And I think that until we as educators become more and, and make or I think that until we have an audience that doesn't necessarily include just ourselves, um, we don't have a hope of changing anything. So, and, and some of you Australian communicators are really brilliant, including yourself, Mr. Ashman. Oh, well. And I think that you could play a huge role in doing this. And not just in Australia, you have a pretty big presence here Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think one of the, that's very kind, one of the structural issues we face, there was a, there's a, a festival of ideas they have in Sydney every year. Well, they haven't had it because of COVID, but generally in normal times, they have this festival of ideas. And a few years ago, they had a panel all about education. Uh, and there were five members on this panel, and not one of them was a teacher. And I think one of the problems we have is that the people that talk about education, um, just that people all feel entitled to talk about education on the basis of yeah on the basis often of no expertise or knowledge or like the, there was a there's a, a a tech educator just this morning on twitter uh saying why don't we do educate not educator a tech guy you know nothing to do with education just right. involved in tech on twitter saying why don't we do school all differently why do we all have to sit at tables why do we all have to and you think well these are the voices that you hear these are the voices they actually get um, uh, opinion articles in the um, serious newspapers um, right. where they can outline these ideas. Um, and yet, where are the teachers who are who are saying, "Well, actually, practically, that's probably not a good idea because um, you know, like removing all the, the, the idea that never dies. Someone will come along and say, "Let's remove all the walls between the classrooms." Right. Um, 
And that, wouldn't it be great? Because then the kids can move about and, and a teacher within about two minutes. So that's probably not a very good idea. But that teacher voice is often absent. And we just hear the the romantic um, voices of, of, you know, uh, revolution and remove the walls and uh, let's give them um, sofas to sit in and all this sort of stuff. You're absolutely right. They, they claim the platform for themselves here too. And, um, you know, with, with all due respect, I think that there's a fair amount of educators that don't keep up with current thinking yeah. uh, about what works and what doesn't. And so they feel pressured by exactly what you're describing. So people like you have to speak very loud. And as I said, there's a, there's a number of you down, down under who uh, are very compelling. I mean, you know, I, I read regularly what you're saying and I think you have to have a bigger forum. You have to be speaking to a broader base because you're right in everything you're saying and more people have to, you know, learn about this and hear about this from a source that is not taking a political stand one way or the other, or not pushing one curriculum over another, just talking about what works, what hasn't really worked in a way that people can really understand and be convinced by, persuaded by. So we need a teacher-led movement. Yes, you need a teacher-led movement. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. That's exactly right, Greg. Well, thank you. Look, uh, uh, on that note, I, I'd like to say thank you very much for your, your time. It's afternoon, I believe, in New York City. I'm looking at my uh, I, I, video. Obviously, the people listening can only see the audio, but I can see New York City behind you. It's quite a... Uh, talking about romance, quite a romantic view out of your window. So. Really? I, I've gotten so used to it, I'll have to turn around. <laughs> So thank you for sharing that with me uh, this morning, your afternoon, and um, uh, hopefully at some point we'll be able to catch up again. Thank you, Judy. I love that. Take care, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>